Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Institute and author of numerous books, most recently Atlas Hugged, the autobiography of John Galt III. Over to you, David and Rory. Thank you very much indeed, Kimberly. Um, you, this must be about your 15th book, is that right, David? Well, I guess I've written enough books that I don't keep count of them, so uh, it's probably my sixth or seventh sole authored book, but then there's uh, co-authored books and edited editions, but uh, yeah, I guess you could call me a prolific writer. I was going to ask what the secret is, because um, what's interesting too is, of course, you're the son of uh, the author of, I think it was The Man in the Grey Flannel Suit, is that right? Yep, that's right. I have a, is that right? Yep, a novelist dad, so uh, I often describe myself as a novelist trapped inside the body of a scientist. Oh, fantastic. But you've become very closely um, affected because essentially the whole field of evolutionary biology had a kind of Copernican revolution around the idea of gene-centered revolution, a gene-centered evolution around about the 19, I guess the 1970s was the period where that happened. And you, along with a few others, not least, uh, of course, your name namesake E.O. Wilson, have been banging this drum for group selection for quite some time. And I noticed very quickly when I uh, when I commingled with evolutionary thinkers and evolutionary biologists that mentioning group selection was a bit like farting in church. <laughs> and it was just something you weren't supposed to believe in and that, um, uh, that there was generally this feeling of kind of heresy around it. Why do you think that is, given that probably Darwin himself believed in it? Well, increasingly I've come to see this as something... Uh, cut from a larger cloth, and that larger cloth is individualism in all of its forms. And so if you look very broadly, what you find is that in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, thinking of society as an organism, grouped as organisms, it was commonplace. In fact, it was even pervasive. And then something happened around the middle of the 20th century, this swing towards privileging the individual as the unit of analysis, and that took place across the board. Uh, economics, for sure, we'll get to that. But also the social sciences, which economics likes to think itself superior to, and my field of evolutionary biology. So at the same time that my colleagues were waxing poetic about individual uh, selection and selfish genes and evolution, then, of course, the economies were waxing poetic about homo economicus, so on and so forth. And in everyday life, Margaret Thatcher could say, there's no such thing as society, only individuals and families. So what we really need to understand is individualism in all of its forms and the zeal with which um, individualism was braced, embraced in evolution explains why uh, group selection had its dark age and also explains why group selection is back and can be amply justified 
despite this uh, kind of roller coaster that we've all been on, not just the evolutionists. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so I suppose the term is methodological individualism, isn't it? Which is to assume that essentially because decisions, let's say, in the social sciences are taken at an individual level, uh, then to understand groups, all you need to do is aggregate individuals. That's right. And, yeah, so that essentially the idea is that group group preference simply emerges as a simple aggregation of, uh, of individual preferences. Um, and it is interesting because I suppose it's a kind of Occam's razor problem, isn't it? Which is that that is, you know, at some level, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful simplification of reality. Well, um, um, uh, keep going, Rory. Go on. But, but no, you know, and that it also, you know, it, it also simplifies the whole business of causation, doesn't it? Because you only have to look at, you know, uh, a limited number of forces. In the end, there's this wonderful quote, I think, from... Uh, I'm just trying to remember his surname. I think he's called Noah something or other, who said that he regarded, you know, individual psychology as merely social psychology with all the interesting variables set to zero. Yeah, right. What we effectively do is we make a problem more mathematically tractable by simply pretending that a whole series of forces don't really apply or exist. And it's interesting, of course, because, you know, Marxism, you might argue Marxism... Uh, was wrong about many things, but it did have a concept of class and class interest, which was at least based on you know, what you might say were recognisable social features of groups. And if you tried to mention class in an economic context now, uh, you'd more or less be met with ridicule. And yet it patently is a thing, okay? <laughs> I mean, you know... Well, Rory, there's... Um... Uh, a whole literature on this, including a, a wonderful paper by uh, Jeffrey Hodgson, who is a great social theorist um, and historian of social science in the, um, in the UK. And if you take a scholarly look at individualism, you find no unity whatsoever. It comes in many different varieties. Uh, scientists and economists are not very uh, reflective um, um, about it. There's also a literature on the, on the related topic of holism and reductionism. And at the end of the day, the idea that so-called rock-bottom explanations are superior to intermediate levels of analysis, it's just not true. I mean, you can forget about it. Um, no, you cannot understand the properties of water and salt on the basis of their component uh, parts. No, you cannot understand institutions and groups and and uh, cultural evolution in all of its forms by reducing it to individuals' thoughts and action, please no. And so the idea that this is some authoritative philosophical foundation is just, no, it's not. And so what we really need to do is to go, you know, go beyond it and to provide, I think, and this is the key point, it's been said many times, if you want to reject one paradigm, you must provide another paradigm. And so far, we've just had a swarm of critiques around individualism, let us say in economics, without that coherent alternative paradigm, which is now on offer in the form of a combination of complex systems theory and uh, evolutionary theory. There's your alternative paradigm. 
which is uh, ready basically to to occupy prime time. But then if you're looking for certainty rather than accuracy, the alternative paradigm always seems to have a problem in that I seem to remember when Murray Gelman uh, joined the, or found, effectively founded the Santa Fe Institute. One of the things he said is that by abandoning the study of physics for the study of complexity, he had more or less resigned himself to the fact that there wouldn't be any kind of significant discoveries. You know, there wouldn't be a Newton of complexity, at least not in his lifetime. And so if you're if the incentives are all around essentially the level of plausibility and certainty you can have around a model, then it always seems to me that more complex models, models based on emergence and the fact that different rules apply at different scales, seem to me slightly doomed if you want them to be successfully taken up by people whose status relies on the semblance of expertise, if you like. No, I would disagree with that. In fact, when Gelman said he was uh, abandoning physics for complexity, that makes no sense at all because physical systems are complex. If you want to be a physicist and if you want to go beyond the simplest models, then you must embrace uh, complexity. And yes, it does call for a different set of techniques and analytical tools, such things as agent-based models as opposed to formal uh, um, mathematical models, but get over it. And so there's no alternative. Uh, you can't study the weather any other way, and that's a purely physical system. And so what it requires is for us to uh, rethink the very concept of theory. No, it's not going to look like Newton's laws of motion. Get over it. And every field other than economics has gotten over it. So, I mean, economics is such an outlier in terms of its antiquated uh, conception of, of theory. But beyond that, even when we embrace complexity in the physical sciences, uh, we're only part way there because um, we need to talk about living systems. And complex living systems obey a different set of rules, an overlapping but different set of rules than complex physical systems. And frankly, um, complex systems theory that who's, who are grounded in physics, such as uh, Gelman, and many others can be part of the problem when they apply complex systems concepts that are, are, are relevant to non-living systems to living systems. There's still actually a lot of integration that needs to take place between complex systems theorists and evolutionary theorists. I have a lot of experience with that, and it's been like a bruising experience. because uh, So that just shows you how much uh, still remains to be done. So, so part of the thing would be that systems that have evolved are fundamentally different from systems that have uh, been designed, in that, for example, the causality is simply going to be more complicated, isn't it? Well, I would actually, design... no, I, would, I would cut the bird another way, uh, Rory. Uh, the, okay. The, what sets living systems, well, there's living systems and there's artifacts created by living systems, Okay. Um, what sets both of them apart from non-living systems, very simply, is functional design. Living systems, such as an organism, or their artifacts, such as a watch, are functionally designed. And yes, a living system, such as an organism, is functionally designed in a different way than a watch, a little bit. Um, although even watches 
our products of blind evolution to a, um, uh, uh, to a degree. But nevertheless, before we make those kinds of fine, finer level distinctions, let's just make the distinction between an entity that is functionally organized, such as to survive and reproduce in a given environment, versus a non-living physical system, such as the weather, which has no purpose whatsoever. You can only understand it in physical terms, whereas with living systems, there's some entities, not all, but some, that you can analyze in functional terms. And so the existence of function and the kind of analysis mandated by function, functional analysis, that's what sets living systems apart from non-living systems. And so when you get economics basing itself on a physics model with, an, with human atoms, with an unchanging human nature, you are just in a different paradigm. That's what you have to change. You have to change to a model in which all of the parameters, such as human preferences and so on, not all of them, but some of them, are malleable. And they change over time. And the business of economics is to actually manage that process of cultural evolution to, to good economic outcomes. So it, it truly is a, a uh, paradigmatic change. So interestingly, you have, I think successfully, rebranded group selection by calling it multi-level selection, which of course contains in it the acknowledgement that selection happens at multiple levels and that there indeed that selection is interdependent. And you also talk about essentially what I, I suppose would be cultural gene co-evolution. Well, in the first place, Rory, this is not me by any stretch. This is, um, I never was. The idea that I was some kind of lone ranger is not... Uh, no, no, no is um, not at all uh, right. And it is important for there to be careful scholarship on the history, and there is actually uh, plenty of it. But I think we should back up just a little bit. And, um, and let me just explain what group selection is. The transition from group selection to multi-level selection, that's a detail, as I will quickly uh, describe. That's not the point. But let me just go back to the beginning with Darwin and his three ingredients of natural selection, basically everything you can measure varies just about. Those differences make a difference in terms of survival and reproduction, and these traits replicate so that there's heritability. Therefore, the properties of organisms change over time. And at first, he thought that this great theory of his could explain all examples of design that had been attributed to a creator. Then he realized, and it was actually a gradual realization, that there was an important exception to this rule, namely everything that we associate with goodness in human moral terms, the altruist, the good Samaritan, the honest person, the loyal person, the charitable person, all of these things involve behaviors that give to others or to one's group as a whole and therefore place the pro-social individual at a disadvantage compared to the individual who does nothing, who accepts social benefits without uh, repaying the cost, or active exploiters. And so when you look at the smallest scale of social interactions, in other words, the individuals that are actually interacting with each other and influencing each other's fitness, then you find, shockingly, that, as I put it with Ed Wilson, selfishness beats altruism within groups. Selfishness beats prosociality in all of its forms. There's something about prosocial behaviors which are inherently vulnerable to 
the opposite behaviors that are either do nothing, free-riding, or are self-serving. And so his theory could not explain the evolution of pro-social behaviors until he added something to that theory, which is very simply that if you just go up in scale a little bit to competition that might take place among social groups, then you find out that groups of pro-social individuals robustly outcompete groups whose members cannot cohere. So altruistic groups beat selfish groups, everything else is, is commentary. This was something that he had to add to his theory to explain all pro-social behaviors. And that, right off the bat, is two-level selection. There's selection within and between groups. Within groups, ways in favor of selfishness. Between group, ways in favor of altruism. And then what evolves depends on the relative strength of those forces. That was his fundamental insight. And it's not hard for anyone to understand. I'll bet that 95% of your audience is going to say, oh, yeah, right. How could it be otherwise? The only thing I would say, and this is, uh, I'd be interested in your response to this. I don't know how closely you've been involved in the ergodicity debate. Have you I'd, come across this at all? Well, a little bit, but I'm going to rely on you to, uh, to tell it both to me and the audience so we can just be on the same page. <laughs> uh, I drive my colleagues nuts by talking about this. But I think we possibly, the standard models which suggest that actually free riding um, or uh, essentially selfish behavior within a group uh, is beneficial, tend to be based on the assumption of additive dynamics, okay? Now, you could argue that under any system that's multiplicative, there is a gain to cooperation simply in variance reduction. On the grounds that there's no difference between one plus three, two plus two, and three plus one, but two plus two is a big two times two, sorry, is a bigger number than three times one, and it's a hell of a lot bigger than four times naught. Okay, so if you look at the dynamics, which reputation is patently slightly multiplicative. Okay, by which I mean is you don't just gain and lose reputation in kind of e equal increments. Shakespeare referred to it as the bubble reputation, I think it was, which is that it's something you build up, but which, in the you know, in that famous joke that ends, you shag one sheep, okay, <laughs> that one single appalling act can essentially destroy your reputation in perpetuity. Um, and um, so, if you if you look at say reputation, but also you look at at the fortune of an organism being to some extent multiplicative and with an essential requirement that at no point do you hit an extinction point, then very simple sharing of the wins is actually beneficial to both parties at an individual level. Right. So, Rory, this is great. There's actually um, um, a number of important issues at stake here. I'm so glad that you've raised it. You've described it very well. And let me take my turn to show you how this gets filtered through a multi-level selection lens. And to see that lens, that multi-level selection lens, you have to do something which is very simple, but not everyone does it, namely a nested series of fitness comparisons. First of all, you have to compare the fitness of individuals within groups. Compare that, relative fitness. And then you have to compare the fitness of groups in a multi-group population. Now, 
Against that background, consider a win-win situation where we're in a, members of a group and we do something that benefits all of us. Win-win, okay? Well, frankly, there's no fitness difference in that comparison, is there? And since evolution requires fitness differences, what we can conclude is that the selective forces operating within groups in a win-win situation is zero. No frequencies are changing. And so in order to find the advantage of a win-win situation, you must go to the group level. Individual groups in whose members engage in win-win activities do better than groups whose members do not. That would be an example of group selection, which is very powerful because it's unopposed. If there's nothing favoring a trait within groups, then between group selection is the only remaining leftover force. It can take place on the basis of random variation. And so this is so simple. And yet at the same time, people reflexively, this is another watershed difference between economic thinking and evolutionary thinking. Most economic thinking is based on the assumption that individuals maximize their absolute utilities. They're not comparing themselves to anyone, which is ridiculous. Uh, Robert Frank has pointed this out in his book, uh, The Darwin Economy. So in order to see through the lens of multi-level selection theory, you have to perform this nested series of fitness comparisons. And so here's how to explain this in, in multi-level terms when we now introduce complex interactions. So you imagine a simple model, and all the first models were simple models. This is the problem with mathematical models. Yes, they're powerful, but they require simplification, and so they result in a de facto denial of complexity. So all of the early models of, of social evolution, no matter what they were called, kin selection, group selection, whatever, uh, employed assumptions which more or less were that um, we have um, variation in behaviors like altruism and selfishness, and that was caused by just by underlying genes. There's a gene for altruism and a gene for selfishness. It's additive, as you just said. So what happens if you now have those assumptions and you imagine um, a bunch of groups that are colonized by a bunch of individuals and you look at the partitioning of variation, how much behavioral variation is within groups, there's your raw material for within group selection, and between groups, there's your raw material for between group selection. And with those simplifying assumptions, then it seems that kind of the advantage goes to within group uh, selection. It's hard to get a lot of variation between groups. Well, now let's add complex interactions. So we, it's the very same situation. We have a bunch of groups. They're colonized by a bunch of individuals. But those individuals interact with each other in complex, nonlinear ways. What that does is it actually creates much more variation between groups compared to within groups. And you can do this empirically. Let me describe an experiment in which I did this. I created microbial microcosms in the laboratory. These were like test tubes with sterile growth medium into which I put one milliliter of unsterilized pond water. And that contained literally millions of, of bacteria small and other small creatures, probably hundreds of species, 
there should be almost no sampling error between those test tubes, no initial variation. And yet, if you let them incubate for only four days, what you find is lots of variation between those test tubes. Why? Because there was something akin to uh, sensitive dependence on initial conditions. There were tiny differences, like the butterfly over Brazil. And those differences didn't remain small. They, they acted as the seed for larger differences. And so complex interactions, ergodicity, or whatever we can call it, um, actually created a huge field of variation for between group uh, selection. And this is why in both biological systems and human cultural systems, variation is never in choice supply, no matter what the scale. There's profound variation among nations, for example, of millions and millions of of individuals, something you could never explain by sampling error on the basis of these kinds of complex interactions. But nevertheless, that does not alter the need for higher level selection in order to select for higher level functionality. Complexity does not alter the necessity that if a system is going to be functionally organized, selection must take place at the level of that system. And lower level selection simple or complex, is going to tend to undermine that. So the idea that functional organization at any level requires a process of selection at that level, that is an iron rule, and it, uh, and it holds regardless of the simplicity or the complexity of the interaction. That would chime very well with the supposed chicken experiment. Is this true? Which is that if you select chickens individually for their um, egg production, and they're all sharing cages of, say, a dozen chickens, you end up with a disastrous outcome. Whereas if you select chickens for the highest productive groups of chickens, is this right? Yeah, so that's the, uh, one of the most famous examples uh, that uh, I've used yeah. for many decades. But let me tell it to your audience. Not everyone knows it. So we're trying to select for egg productivity, hens that lay more eggs. Hens always have lived in groups. Nowadays, they live in cages, sorry to say. And so uh, we select for egg production in two ways. Uh, way one, we select the, the most productive hen within every cage. Uh, method two, we select the most productive cages and breed all of the hens within those cages. In experiment one, perversely, we get a decrease in productivity because the most productive hen in each cage is the biggest bully. She, so she, she gained her productivity by suppressing the productivity of the other hens, bullying behavior. So you're breeding sort of psychotic CEO exactly. chickens rather than collaborative chickens. I get yeah, it. Yes, okay. so anyone in the business world is nodding their heads. Uh, uh, I'm just going to hope my CEO isn't listening to this podcast. <laughs> well, it turns, out, anyway, it turns yeah. out that CEOs vary along these lines too. But anyhow, yes. So, so um and then uh, when we select the most uh, productive groups, of course, we're selecting for the most cooperative hens within the, within the group. And so this uh, wonderful experiment um, that in only five generations truly led to a, a, a psychopathic breed of chickens that were literally murdering each other and, and plucking each other's feathers. That's how bad it was um, compared to the fully feathered and friendly hands in the other in the other conditions. So there is within and between group selection in a nutshell. And it plays itself out in human life over and over and over. I could tell you no end of 
similar examples, uh, in, especially in the business and management field. Now, there's an interesting problem there, which is if you take that and you look at university selection and indeed recruitment of graduates, okay, the assumption is in recruitment in any business that if you hire a group of the most successful individuals, you will then end up with an optimal group of employees. And similarly, the assumption is at the university level. And, and, and of course, it's driven by the need to be ostensibly fair, isn't it? That you have to apply the same criteria to everybody. Now, talking to a very old man who was, when I was at uh, Christ College, Cambridge, actually, which was Darwin's College, that's my, um, that's my only qualification in evolutionary biology, apart from being born in the Baddock, which is where um, Alfred Russell Wilson, uh, Alfred uh, Russell Wallace was born. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the interesting thing is that we assume in recruitment that we're trying to create an optimal team through the aggregation of optimal optimized individuals now talking to this old guy who was who had been the admissions tutor for christ college cambridge back in the 1950s or 60s or so it was fairly obvious that he applied a kind of group selection okay in that you didn't simply choose the people who had the best school a-level results you actually picked a mix of people and some people had slightly worse a-level results but they were quite interesting or i don't know attractive or zany or whatever it might have been Okay, and yet when you demand complete fairness in both recruitment or indeed in, say, Ivy League admissions, what you're actually doing is creating a completely suboptimal chicken cage, aren't you? Well, there's again more. This is um, quite complex. What you've said, Rory, and one one thing that you said is like the the advantage of a mix of personalities rather than a single personality. Yeah. You know, even if you had picked. Um, you know, everyone cooperators, you would not have that mix that you were discussing. So the question as to uh, the benefits of a mix of um, personality types is, I think, orthogonal to um, to the altruism selfishness. Uh, you want them all to be cooperative, of course, but you might want them to be different in other, in other respects. But uh, more than that, and this gets to some of our current work, in fact, the centerpiece of the work that I do in, in real-world situations is based on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who, um, who identified certain core design principles that were, that were um, needed by groups trying to manage common pool uh, resources to avoid the famous tragedy of the, of the uh, common. And I worked with her to generalize these principles. Bottom line is that if you want a, a, a group to work well, uh, you don't pick the most talented individuals for that group to work with, work well. You you create a structure for the group which suppresses the potential for disruptive, self-serving behavior. Basically, you you socially construct the group. This is, brings in the idea of niche construction. First of all, you have to socially define the group. You have to give it a strong sense of identity and purpose, and then you have to structure the interactions within the group to stack the deck against disruptive self-serving behavior so that if there is a psychopathic chicken in the group, well, they just can't get their way because the structure prevents it. And so this structure and then between group interactions have to be structured um, as well. So this is like very commonsensical but revolutionary in the especially in the business world. And we have a paper that shows uh, quite clearly that in the first place, that business groups need these core design principles just like any other kind of group. 
point one, and point two, as as a class, they're deficient in every one of them. Obviously, there's some businesses that do well on the core design principles, but on average, every business, the average business, is deficient in every one of those core design principles. Why? It's because of the individualistic paradigm that they're under the spell of. And the assumption that essentially a team of optimal individuals is an optimal team. Well, yeah, it's like rank and yank systems where basically every year you evaluate everyone and you fire the bottom 20 and, and so on. It's just a recipe for, for, um, uh, for a disaster. Well, I was going to talk, first of all, about Eleanor Ostrom, who I think deserves more coverage, because sure. one of her, I think one of her favorite, famous bits of work was around, was it the Kansas City Police Department or something? She did do, piece, she did do uh, police work in a number of metropolitan areas. And so one of the things is that what you centralize and what you don't. Strom's findings were in a police department, for example, there are certain things you want to centralize to a great extent. So uh, forensics, for example, you don't want every precinct having its own fingerprint specialist, its own DNA. Well, I think she predated DNA, but its own DNA sequencing machines and everything else. Those are cases where centralization works. But at the level of beat police work, centralization is a total disaster. Because several things happen. First of all, people bunk off, okay? If you're in a huge police department, there's no one to notice if you're not really pulling your weight, okay, at the very simplest level. But also, all the local knowledge, the local knowledge which, you know, if you have a small precinct, they can probably tell who did it from about three particular clues of the MO of the burglary. They've got a fairly good idea of who was responsible. All that kind of tacit local knowledge and contextual knowledge gets destroyed in the act of centralization. But in the economic models of gains to scale, none of that has a mathematical expression, and so it counts at zero to begin with. Yep. And so there are questions, you know, there are questions patently about things like Brexit, which is that I think we can agree that there are gains to scale in international cooperation. But I think there might be people who also think that the EU tried to scale the wrong things. So a single currency was a stupid form of scaling, whereas focusing on defence and foreign policy might have been a fairly obvious thing to do. Um, and so that question of what scales and what's the optimal scale of everything before actually the costs of scale outweigh the gains, and the fact that, of course, it varies contextually seems to be a really, really important insight. And I think Ostrom had that. Yes, so I worked with her to generalise these principles. And there's two sets of principles. One is these core design principles, which apply to single groups. Uh, the other one, which she developed not by herself, but with her husband, Vince Ostrom, and their, and, their, um, and their colleagues, was the idea of polycentric governance. And that's what you were just describing. So in a nutshell, polycentric governance notes that A, life consists of many spheres of activity. B, each sphere has an optimal scale. C, Good governance requires finding the optimal scale for each sphere of activity and appropriately coordinating among the scales. Stated this way, it seems that it couldn't be otherwise, but of course, that's not how most governance takes place. And so uh, here again, when you generalize that, then uh, you appreciate the need to do more or less what you called for is to optimize every sphere of activity and appropriate coordinate among the scales. That's what it means for um, uh, 
for large-scale society to be like a multicellular organism with its organ systems, its circuitries, and, and cells, which are the small groups that where people actually work to get things done. That's the, the, the small functionally or, organized group is the cell of multicellular um, uh, society. And then if we, if we take your work in, because I'd love to get to your book, uh, which is essentially what you might call the sequel to Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> um, but one of your earlier books was how to improve your, your town one neighborhood at a time. And so interestingly, people in your field are emphatically bottom up, not top down, aren't they? Then the top down is needed. Uh, uh, in the smart cities movement, for example, uh, there's all kinds of technology and big data that is uh, that is required because what at the end of the day, when you decide to do something at a lower scale, then given that it's a complex system, here's where it's com here's where complexity comes into it. You actually don't know the consequences, do you? There's going to be no. all kinds of unforeseen consequences, and so unless you're able to monitor what's taking place at the systemic scale, you're not going to be able to identify better practices from worst practices. And there's great examples of this. So Toyota is a famous example of being a continuous improvement company in which they do exactly that. When there's a little uh, glitch in the assembly line, it gets flagged. There's a swarm of activity. What do we do about it? There's candidate solutions. They're implemented very cautiously. The whole system consequences are monitored, and then they either accept it or not, and they move on to the next one. So uh, one optimistic thing to say is that there's actually not, not just one, but many, many examples of cultural systems that have converged upon a managed process of cultural evolution. They form goals. They orient around the goals. They experiment. They try stuff out. They pick what works. And, and, um, and to be more explicit about it, and more deliberative about it can only make that work better. No, it's interesting because, of course, what was fascinating also about the Toyota experience is that American car companies tried to implement it and essentially failed um, because what they did is they, they tried to copy the, uh, the end result rather than the process, I guess. Exactly, very exactly. There's a wonderful book on that called The Toyota Kata by Mike Rother, who's a complex systems um, well-informed about complex systems. And he says exactly that. And, and it just goes to show you, imitation is not so easy. When, you, when a person or an organization is successful, you can see that. But exactly what are you going to imitate? Then you end up imitating the, uh, the product and not the process. And, uh, and even another point Rother makes, because something like um, the Toyota system was not intentionally designed entirely, like many other products of evolution, including cultural evolution, it wasn't designed by anyone. It just works without, knowing, without anyone knowing how it works. And so we don't know how our cultures work any more than we know how our genes work unless we study it scientifically. So there's that. So tell me about the, the, the latest book, which is essentially a novel about this. And um, if I'm right, it's called Atlas Hugged rather than Atlas Shrugged. And the whole point is, I think it features the as the hero and protagonist, John Galt III, 
who is, I think, the grandson of the original John Galt. Is that right? Right. And uh, and uh, let me just take a few minutes to set the stage. We were actually in this uh, podcast going to talk a little bit more about the writing process of science and uh, and how science writing needs to be a good storyteller, just like any other kind of uh, of um, of writing. And uh, in my latest nonfiction book, uh, This View of Life, um, to, a, a chapter covers a very t- complex topic, but it's broken down into basically three stories illustrating the major points that are all um, very narrative in, in um, uh, tone. But even the best nonfiction writing is different than fiction. And the, and the, um, and the illustration of that is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. I mean, go figure. That book which, by the way, is, is dreadfully written, um, has had an equal impact to the entire economics profession in providing a moral foundation for the greed is good ideology. Eight million copies. So many people are oriented towards this worldview through a fictional universe as opposed to all of that August economic theory. And so way back when I was starting to study economics from an evolutionary perspective, somebody said, somebody should be writing a novel, basically repeat Ayn Rand's act for an evolutionary worldview. And right away, the elements of a novel, the title flashed into my mind, Atlas Shrugged. The storyline appeared, it would be the the grandson of the main protagonist of Ayn Rand's novel. His father would be a libertarian media giant like Rush Limbaugh. And then the grandson would seek to overthrow the evil empire of the father and the grandfather. Ayn Rand was not a character in her own novel, but she could be in mine. And so uh, in the form of Ayn Rand, R-A-N-T. And from my perspective, to actually build a parallel fictional universe um, that's parallel to everything I was doing scientifically and in my nonfiction writing was uh, just an amazing experience. And I was gripped by it more than any of my nonfiction writing. To actually create a whole fictional universe around this was, uh, for me, it revealed how much we are storytelling animals. That's something about narrative and, and, and constructing our, our meaning systems, our worldviews through uh, stories is just deeply embedded in in our, uh, our human nature. So it was uh, such a a thrill for me to to uh, write the novel, and now it's um, available. It's so anti-Randian that it's not being sold at all. You will not find it on Amazon.com. It's being gifted, and so just type in Atlas Hugged or Atlas World, and you'll be able to be uh, gifted a uh, copy. Yes, strangely, Rand's never had the influence in the UK that she had in the US. I'm not suggesting that, you know, neoliberal economics hasn't had its influence here. In some respects, in terms of corporate governance, the, you know, the whole shareholder value thing is more deeply enshrined in the UK than it is in the US. But Rand herself is fairly much a minority pursuit over here, I'd say. 
Well, it still is. I mean, again, that novel was like, I don't know, 500 pages long, turgidly written, so on and so forth. But it, it goes to show you, this is another important point, that um, another book that was influential and was terribly written was uh, B.F. Skinner's uh, Walden II, in which uh, we have another person, this time a scientist, who is attempting to convey a worldview, in his case, behaviorism, through a story, right? And the story uh, doesn't have to be very good. I hope mine is better than both of those. To actually do what it's intended to to do, it, it provides a meaning system in a way that uh, that uh, 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 just dry nonfiction, much less scientific theory. Uh, doesn't. What's a meaning system? It's the way you think that motivates you how to act. It's the way you think that, that moves you to action. If you look at the Bible and, and other sacred texts, you find that there again, they're terribly written. Mark Twain called the Book of Mormon chloroform and print. But somehow, they create a meaning system that orients your perception, more or less defines what's right and wrong, and then that's what becomes important. That's why you embrace them and defend them and, and, um, and so on. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what uh, fiction has going for. It's interesting because, um, in a sense, our meaning systems are actually cruder now. And I, I would partly blame science for this because it often provides people with... You know, people need very, very little data now in order to construct a, a, a meaning system. And what data suits that meaning system is almost always available because essentially you can look at statistics in any way you choose. So you have, you know, quite serious people. I have quite, you know, perfectly serious and intelligent people genuinely believe you can look at injustice in society entirely through the lens of race and gender or sexual orientation without considering any other variable. Because, I mean, you, you have a very bizarre system, in a sense, where, um, uh, you know, you can patently see um, extraordinary um, uh, injustice and inequality within those groups, okay? So the idea that you can narrow something down, even with, the, I suppose, the sophistication of intersectionality, into saying these three or four variables, which happen to be easy to collect because they're highly visible, are essentially at the root of... Uh, social injustice. Now, even a Marxist would look at that and go, well, that's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, so absolutely, Rory. I'm just trying to struggle to, to, to comment on that in a way which is uh, um, moves things uh, forward. For one thing, we have a huge fragmentation, so we don't even know what groups we belong to at this point in, in uh, times, and there does need to be a common identity. There has to be a sense in which we are part of a group and then the, and then we are all moral equals within that that group. Um, and but what that group is is of course highly contested at this um, at this point. And frankly, it needs to be the whole earth. At the end of the day, uh, we need to be working towards a whole earth ethic in which we're in which that's the group, all of us and the planet. And then everything else we do. We also have other identities. A global identity by itself is not enough, not nearly. The local identity and working at the smallest scales is even more important psychologically and in terms of yeah. action. And then all the intermediate 
levels, but all those lower levels have to be oriented towards the higher good, and that higher good must be the global good. So, um, and that might seem optimistic, but I'm not so sure it is. I think that's actually something that could, uh, that actually, of course, does exist to a quite a large degree. There's plenty of people with a whole ethic right now. And that that can be. Uh, it, it, it'd be easier if we confronted some external threat, wouldn't it? No, Rory. I that said again and again. You don't, think, you don't buy that. I, I. You don't buy that. I don't buy it at all. Now, if those Martians came, do you know what would happen on like the second day? First, there would be this big response, yakety yak. The next thing that would happen would a group of humans would approach the aliens and say, "Please let us be your lapdog, and then we will deliver the entire human race to you." Do you think people would break ranks under those circumstances? Of course they would. I mean, in any in any collective threat, the profiteering begins immediately. This idea that we're all going to pull, there is indeed a psychological response to an emergency, an upwelling of cooperation. Yes, there is that. But to think that could be sustainable and that that's, that's not as vulnerable to to exploitation and profiteering as anything else, just there's no example in history where, where uh, the profiteering didn't begin. Or the, the quizlings, um, or the yeah, or the or the collaborationists. I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean that is, um, I mean that is that gets said again and again, but there's no, no merit to it. Thank heavens, because that's not forthcoming. No, funnily enough, where I live in England, uh, Kent, uh, has the county motto "Invicta," which means unconquered. And I always thought it referred to sort of World War Two or we shall fight them on the beaches. It actually goes back to the, the invasion of William the Conqueror in 1066, uh, where the people, the, whether they were nobles or the people of Kent, basically struck a deal with William the Conqueror, which is if he allowed them to preserve certain local laws and traditions, uh, they wouldn't actually um, essentially uh, <laughs> resist his invasion. And so until about 1930, would you believe it, which is, what, 970 years, Kent had slightly different inheritance laws to the rest of England because they'd struck this arrangement where you had a thing called gavelkin, where land was actually split equally among uh, male descendants, I think, rather than going to going through primogeniture. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> you're probably right about that, that there'll always be some, uh, effectively, some useful idiots or otherwise, who will happily make uh, cause with the Martians. But, um, well, I think that, I think that um, it's going to be the case everywhere in the world, certainly in the UK and in America, that, um, that uh, the current scale of governance is, uh, includes deep inequities, and those inequities are never forgotten. Uh, and in order to move forward, there has to be some move towards um, addressing those inequities moving into the future, maybe not reparations. This is why truth and reconciliation processes are so important, or at the very least, to acknowledge the past inequities. Um, and, uh, and then, only then, can we move forward, and of course move forward with the more equitable um, um, arrangements. And if not, then there's going to be dissolution, um, because just maintaining these empires by force is not going to be, not going to be um, 
uh, tenable. And of course, Peter Turchin's work on, and others on uh, world history and the last 10,000 years of uh, multi-level cultural evolution leading to increasingly larger scales of society. And at some point, uh, in order for um, a nation to succeed in competition with other nations, at some point, must offer some kind of fair deal to its citizens. Despotism actually just doesn't work beyond a certain scale. Above that scale, if a nation is not spreading its wealth and getting the commitment of its citizenry, then it will not succeed in between group uh, competition. And so this whole multi-level lens, which was um, which we've been talking about, is, uh, is the theoretical framework of choice for interpreting the grand story of human uh, cultural evolution. But do you not think there are limits to scale at the point at which redistribution starts to become unacceptable? No, I think that the, what's remarkable is the scale independence, that if you look at uh, the interactions among the nations of the global village, they're subject to the same rules as, as a real village. That's what's, that's what's impressive, is, um, is the scale independence of it all. But we still weren't at a point where, for example, German voters would subsidize Southern European economies. Well, Despite again, it has to, to be. Some extent they... Do you see my point? I mean, it has to be calibrated. So, um, uh, yeah, of course. And it has to be. Uh, and again, I, I worry that our conversation is becoming superficial when we get closer and closer to the hard uh, problems of you know resources flowing to some part of the system in a way which seems undeserved, um, as opposed to an agreement which is uh, more um, uh, taken as more um, um, equitable. And that goes to you know the way people think about welfare and so on and um, so on. Absolutely perfect. Yes, because that, that's probably where I, I, I broadly speaking, buy everything you say, but your belief in the capacity to scale these things um, uh, uh, up uh, without, without any constraints I, I don't think I don't think it's an unrealistic aspiration, but it strikes me as a very long-term project. Put it that way. Well, I think that uh, actually I'm optimistic that way. And let me just end by by pointing our audience in two uh, directions, which really are parallel um, uh, universes. There's the nonfiction universe, and there's the fictional um, uh, uh, universe. So the nonfictional universe. Please go to uh, prosocial.world prosocial.world is where you can see our own efforts to do this multi-level rapid cultural change. We describe it with four key words, uh, rapid, positive, multi-level cultural change. Rapid means let's catalyze this. Let's do something in years that would otherwise take decades or not at all. Positive, cultural change will take place whether we want it to or not, but usually it results in problems. So we need to work in order to align cultural change with our positive normal goals. Multi-level, this has to take place at the global scale, the local scale, and every layer in between. Cultural, everyone uses that word, but when you think of cultural change as an actually an evolutionary process, similar in its fundamentals to genetic evolution, then we have this entire amazing toolkit that has already proven itself 
for the study of genetic evolution that can then be applied to all of the fast-paced changes taking place around us and within us. And so there's your nonfiction project, prosocial.world, and then the fictional universe, parallel universe, Atlas Hugged, not a vanity project, something that I'm trying to do in order to open up that vast well of meaning that can take place only in a fictional world. And the fictional world crosses over to the non-fictional world very, um, very nicely. So, uh, so uh, those are the two resources that I would encourage your audience to uh, check out. An interesting recommendation from this side of the pond would be Francis Spufford's book, Red Plenty, on attempts, uh, you know, the Soviet attempts to use computerization to create a kind of effective controlled consumer economy, yeah. uh, which is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, that, it, that, that's written as a novel, but it's extraordinarily potent in, in every respect. Yeah, and we could also cite Ian McEwan's Enduring Love, in which he, he, he became captivated by evolutionary psychology and wrote a pretty good novel on, um, on, um, on that. So there is a genre out there, Let There Be More, and I made my humble contribution to it. This is fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. And I'm sure we'll get you back in uh, <clears throat> next year with your next book, no doubt. <laughs> okay. And it'll be fascinating to hear more and also to see the progress of pro-social world. Thank you so much. Thank you.